Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. Coming up, Ontario is shortening the time between doses. The Premier's performance in COVID-19. And why does the Prime Minister always accuse those of talking about the Chinese Communist Party of being racist? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Great news. Most provinces are shortening the time between your first COVID-19 shot and the second. Beauty. If this pace keeps up, you will all get your second dose well before I'm married. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show here. Scott Thompson. A little bit more optimism might be needed there. I think that's... uh... Sheesh, I'll be dead by then. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the rails as uh, we wind up week number 62 of the Scott Thompson home show. Feel free to jump into the fun. Lots going on today. Uh, Premier made an announcement earlier on this morning. We'll touch on that in just a sec. Shortening, as Kurt said, uh, the time between first and second doses. Uh, Going to talk about that for the first uh, half hour or so. Let's bring in Allison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today, and is with us now. Allison, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Happy Friday. Hey, happy Friday to you. But you know, the weeks seem to be getting a little bit better as time goes on, Allison. Have you noticed that? I think so. Uh, we've had a lot of Friday uh, news briefings from the Premier that didn't necessarily contain a lot of good news. But I would say overall, today's did. We have a clear plan for how uh, second doses of the COVID-19 vaccine are going to roll out. And it's going to happen quicker than we thought. Uh, we've certainly seen that uh, provinces across the country are slowly, well, everybody's basically at the same place, trying to, uh, with the exception of the hotspots where, where there's some issues such as Manitoba and such. But we're starting to see these plans uh, slowly come out and the acceleration of that second dose. Um, is anybody concerned about supply and getting that second dose in? Because uh, after I hear all of these promise, uh, promises right the way across the country, they always caveat have a caveat that says it depends on the supply continually uh, coming in. We've seen some issues with Moderna. Uh, are they confident they can bring this stuff in? Well, what the government said today is they don't really have a clear sight on when more Moderna is going to be coming in. But, you know, in general, that that vaccine manufacturer's supply has sort of ebbed and flows in certain ways. What we do know is that Pfizer shots are, you know, coming in through the roof. So I think that that's, you know, really what the, the mm-hmm. province is um, backing its projections on how many shots it can get into arms. Uh, 65% of Ontarians uh, now vaccinated, and mm-hmm. obviously there's been, with this uh, situation, and maybe we can clarify this a bit, that uh, with the second dose, if you, uh, obviously some got the, the actual date for the second dose, uh, that stays in the system. If you want to bump up, your second dose, then you go in and rebook, and then through that, the mechanism will cancel your initial uh, dose. Have I got that accurate? Is that how this works out for the second dose? Because some were complaining that you know there were so much hassles with the first one that you know do we have to go that through that for the for the second one? Uh, to which the the premier replied, "Well, over eight million people have gotten it, so you know it's working." Uh, any any thoughts there, or to add to that? Yeah, I mean, the the premier and the health minister have kind of kept the same line. Anytime anyone criticizes the uh, vaccine rollout for being confusing, they tend to say, well, we've done this many shots. So there you Mm. go. We're doing great. Um, So they they sort of reiterated that talking point again today. Um, Yeah, so I think basically what a big change um, for how the second shots are going to be booked is other than booking the over 80 group and the over 70 group uh, starting next week, it's going to start coming down to the day you got your first shot. So, I mean, I did this this morning, went and checked uh, the the email receipt I had got um, from the pharmacy where I was vaccinated uh, and checked that date. So I remembered for sure, because that's the day that's going to um, determine when you can start booking your next shots. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, I got my shot on May 9th and that puts me in a group that can book a second shot on July 19th. Um, so that, yeah, that's sort of the big change there. 
And I do think a lot of the confusion and uh, struggle a lot of people had when they were booking their first dose was because of the pop-up clinics, uh, in particular in the, in the GTA and some other areas that were taking people by postal code. Sometimes they were taking all postal codes and there was sort of, we needed the vaccine hunters uh, account, Twitter account out there helping people find the way. Those are, it seems like more or less going to wind down um, or else maybe become part of the provincial booking system because now once you are eligible to book your second shot, you're just going to be doing it through the government or maybe also if you went through a pharmacy, doing it through the same pharmacy you booked at. So it should take a little bit of the kind of messiness out of the system. Um, but I guess that uh, does remain to be seen how well that actually plays out. Uh, so again, starting next week, just to clarify with the numbers. And again, this, as you mentioned, uh, this is not only an age category, but when you actually got your initial dose. Uh, so you're pretty much going in the same order in which we got the first dose. Uh, but that starts, uh, again next week. And what are the ages? Yeah. So starting on Monday, those over 80 can, can book a new appointment that, that's closer to now than, than likely the appointment they'd gotten before. Uh, two weeks after that, June 14th, uh, people age 70. And then starting June 28th is when it really switches over to the, they're calling it the first in, first out. So that's when it really just becomes dependent on when you got your first dose right. of the vaccine. All right. Uh, AstraZeneca, we know there's a small amount that's ready to expire. Uh, they're going to try to get them out this weekend, I guess. Uh, any more on that? And what about the hesitancy for uh, this second dose? I mean, it doesn't seem like their hesitancy for the second dose is really there. Um, data out of the UK that the that the province has been relying on shows that if you didn't have um, have any of the the blood clotting serious side effects from the first dose, you won't from the second dose either. So it seems like the people that have gotten that shot in Ontario are eager to get it, uh, get the second one, uh, you know, as soon as they can. There are definitely have been some issues with getting them into the pharmacies. Um, the first time that they did the AstraZeneca pilot, if you remember, um, back in early March, there was about 350 pharmacies that were doing it. Now that's been whittled down to about 100, uh, basically based on supply issues. But and those were the original pharmacies that got them at the beginning, Toronto, Kingston, and Windsor, I believe, correct? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So... Only about a third or less than a third of those act, those specific pharmacies are getting it, um, are going to get them right now. And they're going to expire on Monday, I believe. And some, and they're also going through a, a specific quality assurance process that seems to be dragging this out. So, yeah, there's some messiness around there for sure. Uh, the government says that they don't want any of the supply to go to waste, but that about 1,400 doses already have. So, we're gonna. They're, they seem to be down to crunch time with this situation, but they also want to get the quality assurance process, you know, done correctly. Um, make sure all of the vaccines, you know, were refrigerated properly during this whole process. I'm not 100% sure what the actual issue is that they're looking into, but well, apparently they had to call them back. Apparently. I think they had to apparently call them back from the pharmacies when they were paused and then went back to a distribution site. And now they have to be redistributed to those pharmacies after that pause was lifting in Toronto, uh, Toronto, Kingston and um, uh, Windsor. Sorry. Um, and do we know exactly how many are left? Because from what I understand, it's a pretty small amount. Uh, you know, that's why the lowering of the amount of pharmacies that are servicing them. There's just not that many of them. Uh, are you hearing like around 30,000 doses? Yeah, that is what I'm hearing. Thirty thousand, thirty-one thousand, something like that. Which I mean, of course, that's you know. You can burn that up, and you can burn. Yeah, you can burn that up in a weekend in any mass clinic, really, when you think about it. Yeah, for sure. I guess it's just more complicated because the AstraZeneca doses had only been going out through pharmacies. Some of these pharmacies had booked, you know, people shots over the past few days, uh, and then had to cancel the appointments. So, whether or not they're able to pull off a uh, the shoppers drug vaccine drive uh, over the next few days. We'll we'll have to wait and see. Hopefully, hopefully it works out. It seems like they're trying. Allison Smith with his publisher of Queens Park today. Allison, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks, Scott.
All right, uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, talk about what's going on in the news today. She is with us now. Alyssa, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, I am, and I'm, I hope I, I am not retaining fluid, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, no one's ever challenged me on that line before. Maybe I'll yeah, stop saying maybe it. Maybe <laughs> you should say that. I've tried that on a few of your female friends. And All right. Yeah, I know, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's a gender thing. See, there I go, being an old guy. All yeah. right. Uh, we're going to play you a clip from uh, Doug Ford earlier this morning. And, uh, you know, uh, well, I'll leave it at that and ask you for your grading when uh, we return. Here's a clip from uh, the premier earlier this morning talking about reopening, sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't, uh, not going fast enough, going too fast, doing all that stuff. And uh, and also how we have been having this exact same discussion through the first, the second and the third wave. Here's the premier this morning. Mortalities weighs on you more than anything, anyone, anywhere. Secondly, are these businesses. It kills me to keep these businesses closed. But I have to, for the long term, uh, you know, protect everyone's health. For the short term pain that we're going to face over the next maybe a couple of weeks, uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And everyone in Ontario knows we're going to be opening up, but we're going to open up cautiously and, and carefully. Uh, very cautiously and very carefully because I do not want to happen what, what happened before and all of a sudden the, the cases go up and there are all the elected officials that are out there right now that are listening to this. I remember back in March, you're all saying, open up, open up, open up. And you know something, as soon as those numbers went up, everyone just dove for cover. And uh, so we're going to make sure we're going to be cautious. All right, Alyssa, your thoughts. Again, I remember, and, you know, I've been following this stuff every single day for 62 weeks. Um, we remember the first, the second, and now this wave, uh, the big debate over what should be done, how you do it, how fast you do it. I remember having uh, a, uh, the mayor of Burlington on, and she was armed with a petition from all the other Halton mayors saying, open her up, open her up. And then a week later, uh, the numbers went through the roof, and everybody was uh, back down the rabbit hole uh, running for cover. Your thoughts on where we are now and uh, the performance. Uh, she, I, and I guess the PR performance would be different from the actual performance itself because I think I'd give the uh, the provincial government probably an F on communication. Uh, your thoughts? Well, yes, all the way through an F on communication. We've never had any you know clear communication from day one. One person says this, the other person says that. And the way you make sure at a crisis that there's clear communication, you actually establish um, a pathway before uh, when communication needs to be approved and then make sure that everybody sings from the same sheet. It's not difficult, people. Now, check out this. He says, well, all those elected officials who wanted, you know, us to open and we did and the numbers went through the roof like, whoa, 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 you're an elected official. Premier Ford, I don't know if you remember that. And now you want to blame everybody else because they're the ones who forced you to reopen too early. What? I don't I, I, see. I strongly disagree with that, Alyssa. I don't think he's blaming anybody for wanting to open up too early. I think he's just, you know, he, he's he's confronting those who are telling him one thing at one point and then one thing at another point. And and uh, again, these were debates that were had between the first, the second, the third wave. Uh, third wave. The whole country is experiencing some sort of third wave. Uh, we're obviously seeing what Manitoba has gone through uh, Nova Scotia's uh, talking about keeping its schools closed for uh, till the end of the school year. So, I mean, everybody's dealing with a third wave. We had Andrea Horvath on the news the other day screaming that Doug Ford's responsible for the third wave. I mean, how can that possibly be? Well, he's the premier. Who else? Like the buck stops there. And that has not he has not veered from that narrative at all. No, I understand that, but how, what is a, any of the premiers have to, you know, uh, uh, what, what can any of the premiers do? And again, I'm, I'm still a strong believer. This is going on right the way across the country. Every province is dealing with this. And the reason that every province is dealing with the third wave is because we've just started to receive mass vaccines coming up in May. And until then, each province has been left to their own demise to figure out what works, what doesn't work. We all know how much southern ontario has been locked down uh, you know well if they'd only locked it down at the beginning and did it really really strong and left it then we'd all be great well that's bs because then the new variants came in so I i'm not sure 
what the best way to do this is, and many have pointed to B.C. You know, again, B.C. didn't even start masking its students until Easter. Despite union protests and such, they didn't open their vaccine portal till Easter. If that was the case for Ontario, my goodness, there'd be hell to pay. And, you know, I had a doctor on yesterday saying, well, B.C. hasn't even had to close the schools. I then read a headline from CTV News that said from from last year where how they're closing the schools. So I really don't see one province that has done it better since they're all different. And we're all kind of at the same spot. We're all talking about reopening plans. We're all talking about getting people vaccinated with the exception of a couple of provinces. I don't understand what's different in Ontario. I'll give you another example. The deaths. Over 11,000 deaths in Quebec, over 8,000 in Ontario. Ontario's got a population of 14.5 million. Quebec's got a population of 8.5 million. Then after that, it's Alberta. Then after that, it's British Columbia. So I, I, I don't know why in Ontario we think this is the center of the universe and, 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 and we're the only ones with this problem. I'm not saying that, Scott, and I appreciate all the examples that you've given me, and I think that that it's very, it's good to take a pan-Canadian view, because when um, push comes to shove, there's going to be a report on all of this, and shame on us if we don't actually, you know, remember those reports, keep them on the tops of our desks, and uh, refer back to them so we don't find ourselves in these situations again. I think that as an Ontarian, you want to be able to have confidence in the premier of your province. Yeah, you know, you might be looking to see what they're doing in B.C., but I would push back and say you're probably looking more to see what they're doing in Florida while everybody's on the beach and you're sitting at home. So I think that people look as far as their own backyards and to consider what the situation uh, that they find themselves in. I think that Ontario also, like, are we the center of the universe? You know, I deal with people all across the country and they always laugh. And, you know, you guys think you're the center of the universe. And I'm like, well, yeah, we are, especially if I'm the one sitting in Toronto. You know, we are the hub of manufacturing and uh, of what goes, you know, and what the, the, that drives the business, much of it in this country. And I think that if you even just start and take a drive from downtown Toronto and, and make your way up Young Street, the amount of stores that are boarded up, papered over, people trying to figure out how they're going to get back on their feet, I mean, it's really, really devastating. I think that, you know, we've had to manage and do what we could do while we were waiting for the vaccine. But, you know, from my perspective, as a communicator, you know that they're getting information from uh, the people who are crunching the numbers. There are many outside uh, sources that are doing that. And then what happens in with every uh, political party that these numbers do become political and they take them, they look at them and they decide how they're going to disseminate them and they decide uh, what type of messaging they're going to put around them. So that, Scott, is where, and I, I won't backpedal on this. I mean, I firmly believe that there's the interest of the province, that the premier and, um, you know, his cabinet have the interest of the province. But I think that at the end of the day, every political party is just worried about, you know, are they going to get back in the next yeah. time? Yeah. And that has played out. That has mm-hmm. actually played out. You know, not last week, but the two weeks before that, Premier Ford was nowhere to be seen. And then there was that leaked report, which was like, let's start keeping, you know, Premier Ford, you know, away from the media. He wasn't doing the briefings. And let's not have this tail end or this third wave of the pandemic, you know, be seen, perceptions, reality of sticking to Premier Ford. And that was a tactical, strategic move uh, that was decided within within his party. So, you know, I'm sorry, everybody is still protecting themselves as to how they're going to look when they come out of this pandemic. In the meantime, we're all just trying to figure out what's what. And, you know, there are decisions that have been made that, you know, made absolutely no sense. You know, if you if you look at um, golf courses, for example, we know that the transmission is low outside, yet close the golf courses. Yeah, but you know, you know as well as I do, and we had this discussion, Alyssa, if Doug Ford had opened the golf courses way back when, you know as well as I do, the NDP and the Liberals would have been all over that, letting Doug Ford's rich fl- friends play golf while other people can't do anything. You know, you spoke about Florida. Everyone's looking at Florida rather than uh, British Columbia or any other provinces around Canada. Well, in order to get where Florida is... 
You need vaccines. Florida got to where they are because of vaccines, not because of governments made them stay home or do this or do that or do the other thing. It's vaccine that got the rest of the world open. And we've got the same situation here. Yeah, but Scott, you know, the inc- everybody says that, but everybody forgets about the incident of disease and the number of people who actually experienced an, uh, COVID in Florida and in many of those states was high. The incidence was high of people having to deal with COVID. So everybody forgets that and that their hospitals were still overwhelmed. And yet, yes. you know, it was the rights of the people. I don't want to wear masks. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. Oh, but you know what? Look where we are now. We all turned out fine. You can't have revisionist history to say, well, we're all fine now without remembering what you went through at the beginning. And all no, I would agree that. with that. So, listen, you know what? It's, it's Right now, it's a no-win situation. The only thing that's a win-win situation is that uh, vaccines, second-dose vaccines are going to be likely moved up by eight weeks which is a fantastic thing. And the one number that I am really paying attention to is the percentage of Canadians who have received a vaccine. And right now, for comparison's sake, we are outpacing the U.S. Mm -hmm. They have plateaued at about 46, 48 percent, and we are well above 50. So if there's anything that, you know, we could be proud of as Canadians is, boy, are we compliant. And everybody, I I passed the Shropshire Drug Mart when I was uh, driving, you know, uh, through the city, and it was rained around, and I knew that they had, uh, yeah. I think that people were looking for their first or second dose of AstraZeneca. So people want... People uh, yeah, that'd be the second dose. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that being said, Ontario sitting at 65%. That's pretty, that's pretty impressive. And that's ahead of the national average. Well, it is. But what did Doug Ford say? He said, well, listen, we get up to 80%, we're going to be fully opened in stage three. And my thing to that is, is that if you say 80%, you better stick to 80% and not open us up fully at 75 or 74 or 76. <laughs> the one thing that this government has done is they all put a line in the sand and then suddenly that line gets all... Yeah, but wait a sec, wait a sec, Alyssa. Everybody wants a line in the sand. Everybody wants a date. Everybody yeah, wants to see the that. way out of this global pandemic that is constantly fluid. So then when they give them information or they give them a date and then they don't make it, everyone screams. It's like Doug Ford asking for input. Everybody's, why didn't he ask for that earlier? Why didn't he ask for that earlier? It's like, are you kidding me? What was going on last week is completely different than what's going on this week so again you know this is immediate information it's a fluid situation i want your opinion now not what you thought about last week or on wednesday because the situation's changed so again it's like damned if you do damned if you don't and 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 every everybody wants both things they want the guarantee and they want how come we get so much mixed messaging because there's so much information coming out you want all the information if if you're not you're stifling the science we want more information and we know what the hell happened with nasi who by the way we haven't heard a lot from them lately have we well that's because you know they were given free reign with the media um you know and i've said this to you before you know well again who who's driving the bus who's driving the bus who lets that happen under the days of stephen harper scott you could not come out with and say boo to the media from any other department or any other arms length uh organization connected to the federal government without having those messages and that press release and that those key messages run through the PMO. And then and only then were you allowed to go to, to talk to the media. Like, and we all looked at that and go, well, that's just a draconian. I mean, you now all these ministries have their, you know, have their own uh, PR department, for heaven's sakes, and every uh, minister and every person in government has their own communication staff. But what there was was a consistent and reviewed uh, set of messages. So instead, the media phone's nasty. They go, okay, we're going to do an interview. Let's go. And then they say something that is completely contradictory to what is going on the whole time. And that's why. That's why they have not said boo, or they have been told that any media interviews now have to come through us, and we'll decide whether you get to go around. How Stephen Harper of them, how dare they block the science that way? This is nothing to do with science, it's about communication. Well, yes, it is about communication. So why would you let somebody go rogue and give messages about one vaccine versus another? When you're just trying to get shots into people's arms, that's my point. So the reason you don't hear from NASA is that, you know, the PLO probably said, all right, you guys want to speak? You've got to tell us what's going on, and we'll let you know if you can do the interview or not. And that is the right way to go.
Yeah. Uh, too bad they didn't f- do that four times earlier. Uh, your thoughts on <laughs> California offering lottery. Uh, the governor of California is on Jimmy Kimmel last night. $1.5 million for everyone uh, who's got a shot. They're already entered into the draw, and you've got till the deadline of wherever. If you get your shot before then, you'll be entered into the draw, too. Your thoughts on uh, cash. Is cash king when it comes to hesitancy? Well, it's got to be because I think it's working. I saw on the news last night some woman got her vaccine and now she's a million dollars richer. Some hmm. kid got his vaccine and now he's in grade 11 now. And when he gets to school, his tuition is paid for. So you know what? I think that's great. Step up, get people, give people the incentive, especially if they're on the fence. And get them to roll up their sleeves and get a jab in their arm. And if that's the way they've got to do it, then that's the way they've got to do it. Uh, Western announcing yesterday that, uh, and most figured this, we're even talking about getting the kids vaccinated twice, 12 plus, before they enter school next September. Obviously, Western has announced that uh, uh, if you're vaccinated, uh, residents, you can go in and, you know, full meal deal the way you would be uh, in any other year. Uh, is that the way we're going to things are going to move forward? Many have said, well, you can't do that. But as, as Western's pointed out, you've got lots of options. It's just if you want to be a part of the residence program and, and do the full meal deal here. Uh, your thoughts on where Western stands and will we find the others following suit? I think so. I think it was going to take one um, university to sort of say, okay, you know, come out of the gate first. And it was Western. And who knew who was going to be first? But I find it very interesting. And I I think it was making dinner and watching TV at the same time. And I just looked up and I went, good. But they also said, listen, if you find that you can't get a vaccine, especially if you're going to be staying in residence, then when you come here, you have two weeks to get one. Yeah. So they're giving that option, and I'm sure that they're probably going to have some sort of clinic where the kids can just go. But really, um, you know, they said for whatever reasons, if you can't get one or whatnot, but you do need one. And I think that that's for everybody's protection. I understand that people have personal beliefs and that for one reason or another, maybe they don't want to get a vaccine. But not if I'm, se- I'm living um, or if I'm sending my kid to live in a congregate setting that I want to know that he or she is going to be safe. And if they are not going to be safe, I need to know why and what we're going to do to prevent it. There you have it. Uh, Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, as always, a fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for taking the time and have a great weekend. And you too, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Here comes the commentary. So I thought I would wait until after the Leaf game last night to write this commentary, thinking that I would be speaking about the joy Leaf fans must be feeling beating Montreal and moving on in the playoffs for the first time since Eddie Shack played. Huh? Never mind. But in true Toronto fashion, no, not the case. Now what am I going to write about I complained to my family? Are you kidding, Dad, said my daughter. You can write about how the Leafs now have to come back and play in front of a crowd in Montreal. Nah, that's for Rick Zamprin. I'm a racing fan. But as I watched the Leafs blow a great comeback, my kids were saying, Mom, I've never seen Dad so worked up about a hockey game. What do you know, I snapped back. You're Boston fans. Instead, all I could think about was sitting in front of the TV set as a kid for years with my dad, ending his faithful Saturday night watching the Leafs by throwing his slipper at the TV set. And if the dog hadn't taken mine, I just may have. Enjoy your weekend. Go Leafs, go. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The new dose interval for second shots could be as short as 28 days. This is great news, and I know many of you have been waiting for it. Premier Doug Ford says they're again prioritizing age and risk, starting with those aged 80 plus on Monday. Ages 70 plus begins June 14th, then it opens up to those considered high risk late June. 50-plus by mid-July, and those who cannot work from home early August. Kids will have the chance to be fully vaccinated before school starts in the fall, beginning with second-dose appointments August 9th. Of course, this depends on the vaccine supply and the availability of appointments in your region. Booking accelerated appointments is left up to Ontarians. We're told the majority of residents could be fully vaccinated by the end of summer. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. 
Uh, so uh, things are definitely moving forward. And to talk more about all of this, Dr. Carrie Bowman, bioethicist and assistant professor with the Department of Family and Community Medicine, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, very well. Thank you. Seems to be a bit more positivity in the air uh, this week. In regard, we're seeing uh, provinces right the way across the country, with the exception of a few, start to uh, uh, announce reopening. And uh, and the vaccine, 65% of Ontarians uh, getting the first shot and then the shortening of the doses. Uh, it seems like we're turning the corner here. We can see that light getting brighter, Doctor. I, I would really very much agree with all of that. It, it's tremendous to see. Look, we all know it took us quite a while to get up to speed, but but we are doing it. And Ontario, you know, in parts of the country, you know, Manitoba is definitely struggling. They seem to be a few weeks behind on this third wave. But things are looking really, really good. And, you know, it's not just our leadership. It, it, it's the And in a lot of ways, it's not at all. But it, it, it's the people of Canada and Ontario you know, when you look to the United States and the amount of people sitting on the fence that never got the vaccine, and, you know, I personally know of people that are vaccine hesitant that said, you know what, I'm going to get it. I want to do it for me. I want to do it for society. I don't love it, but I'm going to do it. And I commend those people because it's pulling us all forward. Uh, you know, interesting you bring up uh, that because, you know, we've often said as we get to the point where the majority are vaccinated, then we are, are you know, we may see some vaccine hesitancy. Certainly the United States uh, has been uh, has been evidence of that. Uh, how concerned are you? We're hearing reports, uh, you know, we certainly know of the nursing homes that uh, the Ontario government went in and gave uh, two doses right off the hopper for those. And we saw the decrease in, in deaths and cases in in long-term care go way down by like 96 percent now we're starting to see little pockets come up but we're hearing that you know in some cases maybe only 70 percent of 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 the staff have been vaccinated um yeah how uh how important is it that uh we we continue on and make sure especially in situations like this uh where it's very sensitive that we make sure there isn't that hesitancy or or help out in any way we can well you're very much right i mean it is the nursing homes are particularly challenging and you know it's it's well below 70 in some nursing homes where where you do have a, a certain amount of psws meaning personal support workers that don't want to be vaccinated it's a very difficult problem because forcing people is, is an extreme measure, but also they are, they themselves are protecting vulnerable people. So, you know, it, it's a tough one. I, my understanding is it's getting somewhat better. Um, but, you know, it's a tough one. But we are making progress. The other progress I think we're really making as of today is moving towards second doses because, you know, we need that. And, and some of the evidence that's emerging from this, this very, very difficult variant that has first emerged in India is that, yes, the vaccines work against it, but you really need both doses for it to work well. So the fact that we're now moving into our, our most vulnerable people towards second vaccines, that's also really, really good. But you're right. The nursing home situation is a real concern. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about whether kids should be going back to school for the last couple of weeks of this year. Also, universities planning for next September, Western announcing that, you know, it'll be normal for residents, uh, kids and residents at, at school and such. But you have to have that first vaccine in order to get in uh, to residents. Of course, they're, you know, they're then going under criticism for what about those that forever, whatever reason, don't want to get it. And they positioned it Well, there are other options for you whether it's online this or the other but this is what's required uh to get these these students back on to residence again we're we're hearing reports that only 41 percent of teachers have been vaccinated considering there's 65 percent of the population that's vaccinated so should there be rules in certain situations whether you're in a long-term care home where it's obvious the threat there uh, maybe less so for the younger people at university but do we need guidelines about you know if you're going to do this you got to get a vaccine or they may not let you in you know, once it becomes residential, it's, it's, it's very, very different. So let's start with the universities. So my understanding, and I'm pretty sure I've got this right, is the universities are not saying you have to be vaccinated to come back to university. What they are saying is if you live in residence, and that's what yes. Yes. you speak of. 
So residential is different because, you know, anyone that's moving in there, anyone or you've got children, your own children that, that are heading into those residences, um, people want to be reassured that the physical space you're living in is secured. And, and so that's a little different. What they're not saying is nobody can come to campus or attend a class if you're not. And they do have other options. I don't love it. I mean, I like to see as much choice in these things as possible. Mm-hmm. But my assumption is the vast majority of students living in residence will actually be thankful that this is occurring. But um, it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one. As I said, once you get into anything residential, and that includes the long-term care homes, because, you know, with the long-term care homes, and and they've done a lot of good, good work, but it's not just the rights of the staff. It's it's really the, the residents, that is literally their home. So, you know, it's, it's a hard balancing one. That one t- may take us a while to really figure that one out. Uh, things are still much better in the long-term care facilities. But, uh, you know, obviously, slowly, n- yeah. no, go ahead. No, go ahead. You know, slowly we're working this out, it seems to me, as we move forward. And, you know, what my take on this is, we're, you know, the, the, the question of vaccine passports, for example, within our country, not traveling overseas, you know, we're kind of losing interest in that. And I say hallelujah, because I think we're going to work it out without passports. And I, so I think we're doing a lot of good stuff these days. Uh, obviously, uh, hearing about uh, return to school in September uh, for elementary and high school and saying that if this schedule keeps up, we could have uh, those 12 plus vaccinated twice by the time they head into school next September, uh, which is great news. Uh, any thoughts on the last couple of weeks of this year? Obviously, uh, the premier has put out a note looking for input from uh, stakeholders in this uh, modeling shows that if we put them in, uh, take the kids back, that we could see increases from six to 11 percent in uh new cases your thoughts on this or is it you know uh, i'm sort of of the feeling even if we get them in for the last couple of weeks just to bridge the gap between next this year and next uh it, it would be a good move but what are your thoughts yeah. i mean you're the doctor I, I am not as informed on this as many people are how's that for bowing out but but look I'm, no that's fine <laughs> no but i do follow it to some extent the psychological benefits of having children with children, and um, that includes high school students, are huge. And yes, we only have 40-something percent of the teachers vaccinated and others, but it's rising by the day. I, I am hopeful they will do it because I, I, I think that isolation of young people is, is we don't even really understand the full consequences of that. Having said that, from an epidemiological point of view, there's people that know far more about this than I would. But I'm, I'm hoping that we do do it. That's my hope. You were talking about the United States, and obviously uh, they went from zero to 100 in no time. And then after being a Washington vaccine, we saw hesitancy uh, kick in, and, and they're not as quick to, 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 to jump on it as they once were. California now offering a lottery, and anyone who has uh, been vaccinated is entered in that lottery and encouraging others to get before a deadline to also do the same. Your thoughts on that sort of incentive to get people to take <laughs> the jab well to some extent you want to play to win when it comes to at least attempting to get towards herd immunity um i don't know the exact there's states that are worse off in california but um you know uh i i you know i i think that's pretty harmless in a lot of ways there's people that have proposed earlier in the pandemic that if if vaccine hesitancy is really high then maybe we should start offering like five thousand dollars a person do anything we can Fortunately, we haven't had to do that. So, you know, people call this the nudge. It, it's not so much that you're paying people to do it, but you've got this small nudge because there's a lot of people sitting on the fence. They're not hot, completely opposed to it. And, and with a small nudge, they will. So I think the Americans need to do what they what they need to do to try and, you know, elevate those numbers. But what I think we're seeing in the United States is there's going to be big, you know, not all 50 states are the same as we know. There, there are essentially cultural differences between the, the American states. And, it, you know, what's going to happen in Vermont and what's going to happen in Alabama are going to be radically different things. Uh, and they're going to have to somehow find a way to deal with that.
Um, all right. Uh, the province in, well, I guess most provinces sitting on doses of AstraZeneca that were paused uh, when the way back when the federal government had paused it and then the individual uh, provinces uh, paused it as well. We understand they had to go then be returned from those pharmacies, put into a storage and now have to be redistributed to, I guess, select pharmacies in Toronto, uh, Windsor and Kingston, uh, which were part of the initial rollout pharmacy uh, pilot uh, program. Do you, do you think they can get uh, 30,000 vaccines whipped out in a weekend in those areas? You know, this cuts close to home because I'm in that cohort. So I was vaccinated with AstraZeneca within that short window between whatever it was and March 19th. Um, and look, I, I feel that they put a huge amount of pressure on the pharmacies. And the pharmacies have been bending over backwards to keep people informed. I think it's a disgrace that they have pushed this into such a small window. And I know they had to do safety checks, et cetera. They could have been done before. Um, you know, our, our federal minister of health, you know, saying, well, we'll move stuff from province to province five days to go. I think if a single dose is wasted, it's well, maybe not a single dose, but if, if there's any significant waste, it's ethically horrible that this is happening. Uh, not just for Canada, but for the entire world. I feel for those pharmacies. This is going to be the weekend from hell. Can they do it? I, I, I want to be optimistic, but I kind of doubt it. Um, and, you know, it will be wasted. And this is as people die around the world. And there's people like me that would love to get it as soon as possible. Um, so I think they've really made a mess of this one. Uh, still confusion, do you think, with people around AstraZeneca? Do you think those like yourself or, or me who's farther uh, down the road than you are uh, who would who would jump? I guess it's too early for me in that sense because it, you're supposed to wait uh, 10 to 12 weeks. Yeah. Uh, but do you think there's as much um, uh, support for that second dose uh, as there was the first, considering, you know, obviously the confusion with NACI in, in, in Health Canada and yeah. such? Is there still going to be demand to get that second az dose so the thing is we hardly know because our leaders have made such a mess about the rollout that we can't even assess what's going on because it's really just starting today i i can speak for myself i have no hesitation to take a second astrazeneca dose at all um in fact it would absolutely be my preference over mixing doses that's my personal decision um i would get it the moment i'm allowed to get it so but I think that NASI and other leadership within our governments, provincially and federally, were incredibly short-sighted and destructive to use language of preferred vaccines. This language of preferred vaccines has been so damaging. Um, It's really had a big negative spin-out effect on all kinds of things nationally, and it's got international implications as well, because there's many parts of the world that will receive AstraZeneca and you've got, you know, it, it was very unnecessary to be using language like that at all. Uh, that being said, we do have lots of Pfizer, it appears, coming in. Are you confident that we can make these goals by the end of the summer? Unless there's interruptions, unless the flight, I think we can, because I think we're showing tremendous organizational skills. If it's up to us, you know, in Ontario and Canada, I absolutely think we can. If there's unexpected side effects and things have to be delayed or there's service interruptions or something of that nature. That'll be another story. We will see. But remember, you know, it, it really, the second dose really does matter, especially what we're seeing in Britain with the, you know, the, the variant that first emerged in India as it slowly moves around the world. We really do need both doses to move forward. How concerned when you see things like obviously what had happened in India and then we're seeing uh, Japan going through issues and obviously questioning whether they're going to even do the Olympics uh, this summer or not, or even in the U.S. where they've got you know an initial great uptake, but then it's kind of lax, but boy, we're seeing the outdoor events and such. Are you concerned about even with a good portion vaccinated that we're still going to have these uh, hotspots open up? The variance is the wild card. And, and if we can manage the variance, I think we're going to be okay. I really do. I actually do think this rapidly approaching summer of, uh, of 2021 is going to be very, very good. June is still going to be a little wobbly because it's almost June now. Uh, but I think July and August, things are going to be a lot better depending on the variance. Uh, you know, we're not going to have the X. We're not going to have a lot of the big events. 
but I, I do think things will be improving tremendously unless the variants uh, do unpredictable things. Uh, it seems uh, Alberta has taken a very aggressive uh, approach to reopening. They're going to have their stampede at the beginning of July. Uh, surprised that considering where they were just a couple of short weeks ago, that they've uh, set those goals for themselves. Yeah, I am surprised. I think Alberta's being very bold and <laughs> maybe not in a yeah. good way. Um, you know, I think Ontario, like, you know, I live in Toronto, so c- canceling all the events of Toronto for the summer Yes, it was early to cancel it. But, you know, I I think in fairness, you know, this is nowhere near over. And it it was a reasonable safety precaution. I was very surprised to see they're going ahead with that. Dr. Kerry Bowman with us, bioethicist and assistant professor with the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. Kerry, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend. Take care. We've we've certainly discussed uh, the Canada-China relationship on this show at length. Uh, we constantly say when we're talking about these issues, this is not about Chinese Canadians. This is about the communist, uh, the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, we all remember a few decades ago, uh, China was the golden goose. Everybody wanted a piece of China. That was the emergency, uh, emerging market. Uh, everybody wanted to do business there. However, in the last several years, things have really changed in how they do business in China. And we've seen this with what has happened in Hong Kong. We've seen this with, with, with what's happening with the Uyghurs. We've seen what's happening with the two Michaels. Uh, the game has changed, quite simply. Uh, and this is something that is of great concern, uh, especially in the wake of a COVID-19 global pandemic. And uh, we've certainly seen the increase in anti-Asian racism. But again, it's very important to decipher between uh, people from China and the Chinese Communist Party. However, some have questioned the prime minister's language and his support of China through these times and uh, has even, um, well, I'll read the quote from uh, MP uh, Michael Chong in regard to uh, the Prime Minister and talking about the uh, China's People's Liberation Army, their scientists, and exchanging of information and that topic. Uh, and the quote is, when Prime Minister Trudeau conflates criticism of China's government with anti-Asian racism, he plays into the propaganda efforts of China's communist leadership. Beijing's goal is to conflate legitimate criticism of China's government with intolerance towards anyone of Chinese heritage. To talk more about all of this, Michael Chong is with us, Conservative MP for Wellington Halton Hills, and is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Great to be here, Scott. So we have talked uh, with experts on this issue uh, at length, obviously involving all of these issues, including the two Michaels. Um, uh, And uh, talk to us about how we can discuss this issue and avoid the criticism that the prime minister is is putting forth here. Um, How do we discuss this issue? How do we talk about our concerns about uh, just the intrusion of of the Chinese Communist Party uh, without being branded as racist? Well, quite simply, I think we have to focus on the substance of the issue. And the substance of the issue is that the Chinese Communist leadership in Beijing is threatening our citizens, they're threatening Canadians, they're threatening our economy, and they're threatening our values. And at the same time, we have to fight against anti-Asian racism and discrimination. We have to do both. If we do one and not the other, we are not doing our job. In other words, if we fight anti-Asian discrimination, but we are silent about the threats coming from China, we put our citizens, our economy, and our values at risk. If we fight Uh, the threats coming from the communist leadership in Beijing, but we don't fight anti-Asian discrimination and racism, then we put Canadians of Asian descent at risk here at home. So we have to do both. And the problem with the prime minister's remarks is that he was suggesting, he is suggesting that we can't do both. And that's highly irresponsible on his part. 
Why, and I'm asking the wrong person, I know, but why would he take that approach? I mean, this is in regards to concerns of China's People's Liberation Army uh, and the exchanging of information and then obviously what is done with that information afterwards. What is it about this issue that, uh, that annoys the prime minister, do you think? Well, quite simply, uh, they are avoiding a very real set of questions and concerns about the government's lab in Winnipeg. Uh, the government, the federal government has a microbiology lab in Winnipeg. It's a level four lab, which means that it can handle the world's most dangerous viruses and pathogens. And we know that two government scientists there were escorted out by the RCMP and then later fired in January of this year. We know that these two scientists had collaborated with scientists from China's military. We know that a Chinese military scientist from China actually got access to work in that lab. And so we have been asking questions about this, but instead of answering these questions, the Prime Minister has turned it around and suggested that simply by asking these very legitimate questions about national security, that we are somehow fomenting anti-Asian racism. It's a complete lack of leadership on his part. How does that challenge this discussion? How does it make it more difficult? Well, because it conflates two very different and distinct issues. Um, you know, a very real and legitimate concern about the threats that China has been presenting to our citizens, to our economy, uh, to our values, and at the same time, the very real issue of anti-Asian discrimination here at home. Um, and, and by conflating these two issues, he's playing right into Beijing's propaganda. The Chinese communist leadership want, it wants everyone to believe that any criticism of China is anti-Asian racism. And, and I'll give you an example of this. Two years ago, in, just over two years ago, when my, Canadians Michael Kobrig and Michael Spaver were wrongfully detained, and they remain wrongfully detained, by Beijing, Canada and its allies called out China for this and called on China to release these two wrongfully detained Canadians. Well, the Chinese ambassador to Canada uh, equated that with white supremacism uh, in public comments he made. And so Beijing has long tried to suggest that any criticism of the communist leadership is anti-Asian racism and discrimination. And when the prime minister plays into that hand like he did this week, uh, he doesn't do a service to Asians here in Canada. Is he just being cautious and not doing something to infuriate them, riding both sides of the fence? Well, I think he's being irresponsible. Um, I think it's clear that there are real questions about the Canadian government's lab in Winnipeg. It's, it's in his responsibility. It's within his responsibility. It's within his remit to talk about what happened to that lab. But instead of answering questions, you know, he reverts to making baseless accusations. Does this create anti-Asian racism when he talks like this as opposed to representing the facts as to what's happening here and, and Canadians' concerns? Well, what it does do, it actually hurts uh, Canadians of Asian descent because many of the yeah. people who are critical of China and Canada are actually Asian themselves. They're pro-Hong Kong democracy activists. They're uh, Canadians uh, who are who've escaped China's repression to seek refuge and a new life here in Canada. There are, there, there are people who are Christians who fled China. There are Uyghurs who have fled China, Tibetans, and so many others who have fled China. So when he says that criticism, much of which is coming from those communities, is fomenting anti-Asian discrimination, he's, he's in fact undermining uh, those very voices from the Asian community. Earlier on, Michael, you said that uh, that the Chinese Communist Party is threatening our citizenship. You talked about Canadian Chinese being mo the most critical of this government. Should they speak up more? What happens when they do? Well, they have been speaking up. Um, we have dozens of uh, groups in Canada that have been uh, calling out China's leadership for its repression. Uh, dozens of groups who have protested in front of China's embassies and consulates here in Canada. And often they face intimidation from mm -hmm. uh, groups of people that have been organized by China's diplomats here in Canada. Um, I think of pro-democracy uh, activists who've been intimidated by 
pro-Beijing um, organizers. I think of others who've been intimidated um, by agents acting uh, for the communist leadership. So, you know, we have to stand up and be their voice in parliament and make sure that their voices are heard. Uh, is Has China become too uh, interwoven in Canada to monitor this, to, to go backwards? Um, uh, should we be more mindful of the influence that they have here? No, I don't think it's too late. I think uh, Western democracies have woken up in time uh, to uh, counter these threats. Um, if we hadn't, if we had been asleep at the switch, um, you know, across uh, democracies in Europe and in North America, uh, democracies like Japan, over the next ten years, then I fear it might have been too late. But I think we've woken up to this threat early enough that we can begin to counter it. And I think you're seeing increasingly that. Uh, Governments like the Biden administration, uh, governments like those in Europe and in the UK and Australia um, have started to work much more closely together. The problem is, is that uh, the Trudeau government hasn't been working as closely as it should be with our allies and partners to counter these threats. You know, I think about a country like Australia that's been very, very strong in standing up uh, to China's threats, even though Australia is much more trade dependent on China than is Canada. Um, You know, 10 years ago, Australia was seen as a country that was very closely aligned with China, a country that was ever more integrating its economy with China. But the Australians have woken up to these threats and have done a 180 on their position on China in defense of their citizens, their companies, their economy and their values. And I think that's the approach that Canada should be looking to. Um, So we, we should be working much more closely with countries like Australia to take a stronger stand against these threats. Uh, we heard U.S. President Biden this week announce that he wants intelligence services to double down on the investigation into the origins of COVID-19 uh, and what happened in Wuhan and such. Uh, your thoughts on that? Uh, will we find out answers to the questions we need? Well, I think that's a welcome development from the Biden administration. Uh, we've always believed that there's two uh, credible theories about how this virus emerged. One is that it emerged out of nature, it emerged naturally um, and jumped from animals to humans naturally. The other theory is that it came out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, you know, the, the, that theory uh, a year ago was being discredited as being a, a conspiracy theory, but it's clear now that that is a theory that warrants further investigation. So I'm very encouraged by the Biden administration's uh, statement this week, the president's instruction to the U.S. intelligence community that he wants them to explore both of, both of these theories and report back to him in 90 days about which is the most likely. Um, and so, you know, we, we've got to watch this very closely, which is, you know, why what happened at the government's wet lab in Winnipeg is so critically important, because that lab collaborated closely with the Wuhan lab. And we need to know what exactly happened between the Winnipeg lab and the Wuhan lab, what kind of collaboration took place, what kind of capacity building took place, in order to ensure that if this virus did emerge out of the Wuhan lab, uh, that we have better oversight of this Winnipeg lab. Uh, I can't let you go without asking your thoughts on the two Michaels, where we are now, uh, the whole Huawei CFO uh, investigation, extradition and such. Any more on any of that or or how this is moving forward? Well, we continue to call for China to release uh, Mr. Kovrig and Mr. Spaver. Uh, We're hopeful that the Biden administration will take uh, efforts to help secure the release Uh, There's been no indication to date of what exactly the Biden administration will do. Um, They indicated several months ago that before they settled on a particular course of action with respect to these two Canadians, uh, that they wanted to first fully review American policy toward China. At the time, they indicated it would take roughly four months to complete that review. Uh, We're around that four-month mark now, so I'm hopeful that uh, they will work closely with the Trudeau government to secure these two Canadians release. And I also might add that, you know, there are two other Canadians that uh, we have to also be mindful of. There's a uh, Canadian Hussein Jalil uh, of Burlington, Ontario, whose family still lives there, who's been detained now for almost 20 years. His whereabouts is completely unknown. And Canadian Robert Schellenberg, who's been on death row for some time now. And these, these four Canadians are 
uh, something that should be a priority for uh, the Trudeau government. Uh, Michael, any thoughts on ba- on the Beijing Olympics? And, you know, it seems that with the Huawei CFO situation and the timing of the Beijing Olympics, that this all may come to a head at virtually the same time. Uh, any idea what the free world will will do when it comes to the Beijing Olympics? And, and can we all go there and celebrate and, and do what we do during an Olympics, considering the hell that China has put us through, and especially the two Michaels? Yeah, we've been calling for a relocation of the Olympics. Um, but if that isn't likely to happen, then at minimum, uh, there should be a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics. In other words, uh, democracies uh, would refrain from sending government representatives to the opening and closing ceremonies. At minimum, uh, I think that's something we should be pursuing and something we're calling on the Trudeau government to do. We also believe that Western companies, um, that are supposed to stand for ESG goals, environmental, um, sustainable, uh, environmental sustainability for, for good governance, um, should not be corporate sponsors of an Olympics that is taking place in the shadow, not just of gross human rights abuses against Tibetans and other peoples, but also in the shadow of a genocide against the Uyghur Muslim minority. What about the safety of athletes? Are you concerned about the safety of athletes or their staff, considering what has happened to the two Michaels? We are. We are concerned. Uh, You know, as an example, uh, you know, it's not clear what will happen uh, if uh, athletes uh, who are of Uyghur um, descent, so who are of Mm. Muslim faith from the Uyghur Muslim minority, are attending these Olympics, whether or not they or their families will be under threat. Um, You know, all those questions remain unanswered about whether it's safe for uh, people with family ties in China to travel there and the like. And so for all those reasons, you know, we think the government needs to put, uh, start focusing on those upcoming Olympics and making decisions about what kind of representation Canada will have there. Michael Chong has been with us, Conservative MP for Wellington, Halton Hills, uh, concerned about uh, the comments from the Prime Minister in regard to questions about China's People's Liberation Army and the Prime Minister branding those comments as racist. Michael, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.